All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's ask his guidance and direction on our study today. Our Father, we're thankful for all that we have learned just as we have begun this epistle to the Ephesians as we get into this magnificent eulogy from verses 3 through 14. There is so much that is revealed to us in such a succinct way about your plan and purpose in redemption and for the church, for your purpose in saving us and placing us in Christ and the magnificent mission that you have given the church, that you have appointed us to, uh, to reflect your grace and glory in this dispensation. Now, Father, as we continue our study today, help us to see and understand that which is in the Word and that which challenges us to glorify you in every way, every day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by turning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we come to the end of the opening of three sections, three panels, as it were, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, where the Apostle Paul focuses our attention on first the Father, then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. We have studied through the verses 3, 4, and 5, and that has helped us to understand that contrary to what appears on the surface of our English translation, that the Greek words in the text are words that reflect this idea of an appointment of God ordaining us in Christ. That is a corporate term. He is ordaining, he did not um, choose or appoint us to be in Christ, but he appointed us in Christ to a mission. And then it goes on and uses a word that is uh, historically been translated predestination, but again is not a word that means predestined to eternal life or eternal da- damnation, but is a word that we might understand in relation to his foreordination or as some would have it closer to the idea of he puts a claim on us, he ordains us to adoption as sons. Again, the emphasis is on those in him and their mission unique to this adoption that is ours in Christ. And then he comes and he then closes with a doxology, a statement of praise to the glory of God. And this is found at the end of each of these panels where he focuses on first the Father, then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. It is a statement of praise to God, and so we are going to learn something today about what it means to praise God. The concept of praising God has truly fallen on really hard times in modern Christianity. For many people, the idea of praising God means to sing some sort of trivial uh, chorus that has been recently written. As you know, I am not a fan of these because they fall short of the high standards of excellence that we should find in anything that we do, whether it is the music or whether it is the poetry. We'll talk about that a little bit as we go forward, that the words, the lyrics of any hymn or any 
chorus that we sing as a prelude to worship. Now, I always add that because I think there's times when you're at a youth camp or something else and you have some fun songs and this and that that are biblically centered, and that's great, and there are some fun songs that kids can sing when they're growing up in Sunday school, and that's all fine and good, but it's not used as a prelude to worship because the core of worship is the study of God's Word. It is a rational, logical, intellectual process. And there is music that takes that away from us, and it jumbles up our thinking, as it were. It emphasizes emotion at the expense of thought. And all of that runs counter to what is what we should be doing when we come to this study of God's Word. And that just deals with the music. Then we have the words, and the words are often today uh, not good poetry. And that's probably been true throughout much of history because the hymns that have survived are those that were of a classic nature. They had an impact on the worshiper. They expressed biblical truth well and therefore they survived. There were many that did not survive because there was either poor music or the words just weren't that adequate. And so I would suspect that the vast majority of hymns that have been written down through the last 2,000 years have long been forgotten because they did not measure up. And I would suggest that probably 99.9999% of that which has been written in the last 50 years will not be remembered uh, 50 years from now. In fact, there were more biblical choruses then uh, that came out were sung back in the 70s and 80s, some of which I remember, but nobody sings those anymore. They did not stand the test of time. And when we are going to glorify God, that which we bring should be of the highest quality. And so uh, that's part of it. And we'll talk about some of those things as we go through our message this morning talking about praising God. But first we have to understand what Paul says here as he comes to the end of this first uh, part of the eulogy. Remember the word eulogy is a word we use a lot when it comes to a funeral or a memorial service where we talk a lot about the person who has died. But the word itself means good words. The EU in, in Greek indicates that which is pleasant or that which is beautiful or that which is good. And the L-O-G-Y is from the uh, Greek word logos or logeo to speak something that is beautiful or something that is uh, well. And it is used to describe a statement where we are praising God. And so that is well applied to this section for there are these three doxological statements that uh, focus our attention upon the uh, eternal attributes of God, who he is and what he has done. And so having uh, reflected upon God, starting with the phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, extolling us there using that phrase, blessed is a synonym for praising God uh, because he has blessed us. He has freely given us uh, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. This focuses our attention upon God's grace, that he's freely given these things to us every spiritual blessing. We did not earn or deserve those things. So from the very opening verse, our focus is on the unmerited kindness and goodness of God. And that is how Paul ends when he comes to verse 6. It's a difficult phrase in the Greek to translate because it's a series of genitives at the end, and it's difficult to sort through how they should be translated. He ends his statement of praise for what God has done in terms of his plan for the church. I take something like a corporate view in terms of all of these passages referring to in him because the 
focal point of Ephesians is on the church, the uniqueness of the church, the mystery of the church, God's specific plan for the church, the body of Christ in this dispensation. And so these initial terms of appointing us, ordaining us from eternity past, tell us of the high calling that we have in Christ and in the church. And so he concludes then with this statement to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, this is the longest of the three doxological statements. The other two are rather short. In Ephesians 1.12, he simply says, to the praise of his glory. And in Ephesians 1.14, he repeats that to the praise of his glory. First of all, we need to understand this word praise. We'll understand more about it as we get into understanding what the Bible teaches about praise. Uh, praise simply means to give honor and to extol someone, to express gratitude or thanksgiving to someone for what they have done. It is a statement that commends someone, uh, that provides a sense of applause to express the thankfulness for all that someone has done. It is focusing completely upon them. The Greek word epinos has this idea, but we must understand that when we look at a lot of these important words such as holy or praise or salvation, that we have to recognize that the writers of Scripture are coming from a Hebrew Old Testament perspective and so that these words find their core meaning back in the Old Testament. So we always have to see how these words were used, what they meant in the Old Testament, the examples that we have there. Uh, th- then we see, we see that this is the focal point of, of uh, the blessing to God, starting back in verse 3. It is to or directed toward this expression of praise of the glory of God. Now, that's a nebulous concept, the glory of God. The Hebrew word, kavod, has the idea of that which is heavy. Literally, that's what it means. Something is heavy. Back in the 70s, 80s, you would hear somebody talk about something that was serious, and they'd say, well, that's really heavy, man. And... um it's expressing the same idea of something that is important, something that is weighty in significance. And when we talk about the glory of God, that's what we're talking about, that God's, God is such that he is the most significant being in the universe. He is the one who holds the creation together. He created everything. He sustains everything. He is the one who provides salvation, deliverance, meaning, and hope, everything for us so that we should not live any aspect of our life without him. That's the idea of glory. His, he is significant. We glorify God by showing that he is the center of our life, that he is the most significant aspect of our life, that without him nothing in our life has value or meaning. Because of that, the word also came to refer to God's essence, his essential nature, his characteristics, his attributes, so that when we quote from Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's a, that became an idiom or a circumlocution. That's another way of saying something about his essence. We have all sinned and we fall short of the essence, the character of God. Because God is perfectly righteous and just, he cannot have an intimate relationship with those who are less than perfect 
righteousness. So this is to the praise of his essence or to the praise of his essential nature, to the praise of who he is. It comes close to that that other idiom that we run into many times, especially in the Old Testament, of the name of the Lord, where we have studied that Abraham called upon the name of the Lord, and that idiom represents his character, who he is. Calling upon the name of the Lord meant to make proclamation about who God is and what he has done for us uh, in our lives. So this is to the praise of the essential nature, namely grace. It focuses our attention on God's grace, and that is what we see emphasized when we're back in Ephesians 1.12 and 1.14 to the praise of his glory. But what makes that glory significant, according to uh, 1.6, jumping ahead, back up, is the glory of his, the, his, the, the essential nature of his character, namely grace. And <clears throat> so... We have passages in the Old Testament that reflect this same idea. For example, Psalm 57, 5, be exalted, O God. That idea of being exalted means to lift him up, to raise him up, to elevate him, to focus our attention upon him. It is an aspect of praise. In praise, we lift God up, we focus our attention upon God. If we are to praise another human being, what do we do? We put the spotlight on them. We talk about them. We lift them up. This is the idea. It is a call to praise. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory, again, let your essential nature, your essence, be above all of the earth. So this idea of grace comes from the Greek word charis, which has to do with undeserved or unmerited favor. It covers every aspect of God, like holiness is applied to every uh, attribute of God. Grace is also part of every attribute of God. But what's interesting is where this sentence goes from there. It's to the praise of his essential nature, namely grace. And then the next phrase, the relative clause there, by which emphasizes the means by which he made us accept. And that's an awkward translation that misses the point of the Greek. By which, that is by means of his grace, he graced us out. Because the Greek word there that is translated, he made us accepted, if you just read that in the English, you might think, well, maybe that has something to do with the imputation of righteousness. But that's not, that's not what the, what it says in the original. The original verb is karatao. From, the noun is charis. The verb is karatao. It means to be gracious or to graciously do something. It is an active voice verb, which means by which grace, it's third person singular, he graced us, he gave us unmerited favor. Where? In the beloved. It is not talking about how we get in the beloved. It is talking about, again, what we have as ours in Christ, the word beloved there talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. So the focus here is on the essence of God, all of which is summed up in terms of grace. Now, pedagogically, I use this diagram to remind us of 10 essential attributes, core attributes of God. Others organize things a little differently, but this is simple easy to remember, and something you can use when you are thinking through your praise to God, praising him for each of these individual attributes and reflecting upon how each of these attributes relate to uh, a deliverance that God has brought into your life or to some problem. When you think through the 
characteristics of God and you compare those to any problem we face in this life, suddenly the problem goes away because we see that it is that God is more than capable of handling any situation we face. He is sovereign. He's the one who reigns on high. You don't see the word sovereign per se in the scriptures, but what we do see is this concept of God as creator ruling and reigning over his creation. He is righteous and he is just. Two, the, the, those two English words reflect two different meanings in original Hebrew and Greek words that can re- relate very closely together. So in um, in Hebrew, we have the word sedeke, sedeke, and in Greek, we have dikaiosune, and that can mean the quality of being righteous or the application of that righteousness, which is justice. Then we have the the word love, uh, which got, we have uh, three or four statements that define God specifically. God is truth. God is love. God is holy. Uh, love covers every aspect of his of his character. He is eternal. There's no beginning. There's no end with God. He is life itself because he is the one who created life. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is omnipresent. He is present to every part of his creation. He is omnipotent. He is able to do whatever he desires to do. He is absolute truth or veracity, and he never changes. He is immutable. So as we think about that, all of that gets summed up in the sense of God's glory. This is what makes him so important and central to everything in life. And so he has made us accepted in the beloved. This is based on the verb agapao, the one who has been loved. And this is the only place in the scripture where this is applied to our Lord Jesus Christ as a title, but it can find its source in the Matthew 3.17 and its parallels in the other Gospels. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, then the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the phrase in the beloved is just another way of talking about being in Christ, being in him. So this praise comes out of this reflection upon what God has done in our lives in making us part of the body of Christ and the mission for the body of Christ. When we get into the next section, we will be talking about the role of the second person of the Trinity, and we will learn about the fact that in him, once again, what we have in Christ, we have redemption uh, through his uh, blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace again. So we see the same themes being uh, reiterated over and over again. And then when we come to the end of that section, it is another doxological statement that uh, to the praise of his glory in uh, verse 12, and then we come down to the very end in verses 13 and 14 where the focus shifts to God the Holy Spirit and that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance, and that is to the praise of his glory. So in this opening paragraph, opening part of the paragraph, because all of this is one sentence in the Greek, it is a reflection on how God appointed us to a mission as part of those who are in Christ, and that has to do with our sanctification, that we are to be holy and without blemish, that we have been preordained to be to adoption as sons, and we have been given so much as adult sons in Christ and that he has designed all of this for a special purpose. So having gone through that, we need to then address this topic of what the Bible teaches about praise. 
How do we praise God? Is simply praising God, simply saying praise God, which is hallelujah in the Hebrew. Hallel is the Hebrew verb for praise, as we see here on this slide. Hallel means to praise, to commend someone, to glory in someone, to applaud someone, to express gratitude or thankfulness. So gratitude is from the same root as grace in Latin, gratia. And so we are to be thankful for that which we have been freely given. Praise expresses our admiration. We celebrate what God has given us. We proclaim him. All of these are different synonyms to express the multifaceted idea of praising someone. It is not something that is simple or superficial. It is not simply repeating the idea of praise God. The verb hallelujah, when it has that U on the end in the Hebrew, is a, is a second person plural ending, meaning y'all praise. It's a command, and it is not a suggestion. And then you have Yah at the end, which is the first syllable in the name of God, Yahweh. So hallelujah means praise God. So we don't praise God by saying hallelujah. That is a command to talk about what God has done in our lives, to express what God has done, how he has intervened, how he has answered prayer, what he has provided for us. And it is an opportunity to talk about who God is and what he has done uh, in our lives. The idea of praising God is expressed through various synonyms in the Old Testament. You have uh, one word, sipur, which means to declare or to tell. And so we praise God by making declaration. This comes across as, as scholars who categorize the, the uh, Psalms. They talk about individual uh, praise. They talk about a declarative praise when you declare what God has done or descriptive praise. And each has some different characteristics, but they're very, very similar uh, nonetheless. Another word that is used is one I mentioned earlier from kavod, meaning to honor or to glorify God. So praise is related uh, and sometimes just expresses glorify God. Another word that is used is uh, hindil, which means to magnify. Uh, another word, roman, indicates exalting him or lifting him up. Uh, his cure from zakar, meaning to remember God. All of these are different facets of prayer. Remembering God isn't simply recalling something. It is recalling something for the purpose of retelling what God has done or doing what God has, has commanded us to do. But perhaps the most significant word that is used as a synonym for praise is a Hebrew word, uh, yada, which is uh, from the word meaning to give thanks. And in fact, that is used in many of the Psalms to express uh, thanks or gratitude to God. So I have summarized some of the things in, that we learn from studying Scripture and thinking about praise so that we can think through different aspects of praise. When we think about praising someone else, it takes us out of ourselves. Praising someone is going to take us out of our self-absorbed, narcissistic sin nature to focus on someone else, to focus in this case on God rather than on ourselves. One of the most helpful things that I have learned and we have learned together over the years is this diagram related to the sin nature and that at the very core of this sin nature is this idea, this orientation to self. We summarize sin based on Satan's, uh, Satan's five I wills in Isaiah uh, 14, 12 to 14, culminating in his statement, I will be like the most high. I will, I will, I will, I will. It's all about me. Uh, nothing defines our current Western culture and American culture more than the word narcissism. 
We had a president that was sometimes referred to as the narcissist-in-chief. I won't mention one. I think it applies to several. Um, they reflect the culture out of which they come, and we are all that way. But when we focus on God to praise him, it should take us completely out of ourselves, out of our circumstances, and put our thought completely upon uh, who he is and what he has done. This is point two, that praising God takes us completely out of ourselves, and focus on and our focus on our circumstances and to put our focus on God on who he is and what he has done is doing and will do for us one of the psalms that does this as we go through these i want to illustrate things through the psalms the psalms really are the foundation for helping us understand what praise is. In fact, the word halal in one of its forms, tehillim, is the word that is the title for the uh, book of Psalms in the Hebrew. It is about uh, praising God in song. But remember, there's two aspects to a song. One is the music, which was not recorded for us. The other has to do with the words. And these words reflect or demonstrate that that when we sing, the words that we sing should follow certain standards. It should be good poetry. There, I have read many people, not just biblical scholars, who have said that the poetry in the Psalms is higher than any other poetry produced by humanity. The words and how they are constructed are significant. It is not just the content of the words, for we see that the writers of the Psalms took great pains in how they organized and structured what they were saying. So I was thinking about, thinking about who God is. We have passages like Psalm 139. It is a psalm of David, we're told, in the superscription. It is addressed to the chief musician for him to put music to it. And the focus in the first, um, first 13, 14 verses is on the character of God. It's talking about his omniscience, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. So you have this figure of speech uh, known as a merism that talks about two opposites, and that's to talk about everything in between. So when we read morning and evening or day and night, those are the two opposites. And so if we are to meditate on God's word day and night, that means it should continually be a focus of our thinking. So if the psalmist says, you know my sitting down and my rising up, that means you know everything uh, about what I am doing. Not only that, the second line intensifies that, talking about the fact that you understand my thought afar off. You know exactly what I am thinking. Verse 3 says, You comprehend my path, that is the direction of my life, and my lying down. So we're going somewhere or we're at rest. That, again, is a merism covering all aspects of our life, which he then expresses more specifically in the next line, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before. In other words, all around me. You laid your hand upon me. That talks about God's power, that God's power protects us. Uh, so he's talked about God's omniscience, now uh, indication of his omnipotence. And then verse uh, uh, verse 6 goes back to omniscience. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And then in verse 7, it begins to talk about God's omnipresence. He's always present. 
Uh, David says, where can I go from your spirit? I can't escape you. You're everywhere. Uh, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, today we would say if I get on an airplane and go somewhere, if I get on a boat and go somewhere, uh, I can't escape you. You are there. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Surely the darkness, if I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from, hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. That's a great thing to think through. That's what meditation is. We'll talk about meditation and praise uh, a little bit later on. But that's what this is. It's reflecting upon who God is, his attributes, and expressing it in terms of everyday action. That's why we relate to it so well. We realize that we can't escape from God's presence. We can't escape or hide from God's knowledge. Now, another psalm that expresses this idea of praise is Psalm 103. Psalm 103, and we'll look at just the first five verses. Psalm 103.1 begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Now, when we look at the word blessing here, like in Ephesians 1.3, has this idea of expressing praise to God. We cannot add something to God. He of himself is, is perfectly self-sufficient, so we don't add something to him by blessing or giving him something. It is a, another way of talking about praising God. It is directed to the psalmist soul. He's talking to himself. He's telling himself that he needs to uh, to address God. Now, we have an example of that from the hymn that we sang this morning. We read in, in um, the, the hymn, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, the same language. When we read the first verse, he is obviously influenced by this psalm. He says, praise to the Lord, and, the, and, and then it's followed by two more phrases that focus on who God is. Praise to Yahweh, praise to the Almighty, praise to the King of creation. And then the next line imitates Psalm 103. He addresses himself, O my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. What we find in a lot of well-written hymns is that the writers have so immersed themselves into the Word and made the Word such a part of themselves that almost every phrase or every line is a paraphrase or reflection of a line in Scripture. That's why the better hymns have stood the test of time is because they are not focusing on human emotion or our own circumstances, but they are reflecting deeply upon uh, the Scripture and ref reflecting upon God through the Scripture. So Psalm 103 in verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not any of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. See, in praise, we focus on what God has done, not just who he is, but what he has done. He forgives our iniquities. We're not to forget all his benefits. His benefits are that which he's provided for us in grace. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, Paul says in Ephesians 1.3. It's a parallel idea. He forgives our iniquities. We'll see this in coming up in the next verse, in verse 7, when we have in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Uh, he forgives all our iniquities, he heals all our diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, 
who satisfies your mouth with good things so that their so that your youth is renewed like the eagles what a great focal point to, and a model for us in thinking about uh, what a hymn says and what a hymn means and that is how we learn to praise god as you read through the psalms you can highlight the word praise when it are bless or think about as or extol or declare as you go through and then look at what is being declared about about the Lord. When I spoke earlier, giving a little background on the hymn Praise to the Lord the Almighty, uh, it's written by Joachim Neander. As I said, he was a fifth generation uh, pastor. He lived only 30 years from uh, 1620 to 1630. And he was a not only a pastor, but he was a noted uh, theologian as well. And he wrote many, many of these, of these hymns. I got a new book this week or last week called 40 Favorite Hymns on the Christian Life by Leland Riken. Now, Riken, if you were at the Chafer Conference, uh, Dr. McGinnis mentioned several other books. Riken's written a number of books. He's actually a, a literature professor, and he looks at Scripture from the perspective of good literature. And so he has written this short volume reflecting on um, 40 favorite hymns. The last one he addresses is praise to the Lord, the Almighty, and he says some things there that I think are important. What sets his book apart from other books on hymns, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about uh, the circumstances surrounding the hymn, but he evaluates many of these hymns on the basis of their poetry. Now, that's usually not something that is comes first and foremost to our minds when we're singing a hymn. But for the hymn to have staying power, the words without the music should reflect the standards of excellent poetry. So he begins, and I'm going to read a little bit of what he says. He says, the genre is the, of the poem is praise to God which is closely modeled on the biblical psalms of praise. Such psalms are comprised of the following stock ingredients, and you can read this in just about any introduction to the psalms. There's a formal call or command to praise God, a naming of the person or the group to whom the uh, praise is directed, a list or catalog of God's praiseworthy actions, a note of closure and finality to end the poem. He says this poem, and praise to the Lord the Almighty, is written in a high style on a momentous subject. That is often something that is lacking in contemporary songs. The reason is, is that we don't take time in our Christian life and in our busy, hectic schedules to reflect deeply and profoundly on the scriptures and on God, something that is known as meditation. And it takes a lot of time to do that, but we're too busy. We are not surprised by the fact that our Christian culture, our evangelical culture, is perhaps one of the most superficial and narcissistic Christian cultures ever produced in the history of Christianity. And so how it, can such a culture produce the kind of deep, profound thinkers as generations in the past have that can write a high-quality uh, deep, profound uh, poem that ref- that can then be set to music. And so it is no surprise that 99.9999% of what has been written for uh, singing and for praise in the last 50 years doesn't measure up. It is because 
the standards have gotten so low for living the Christian life and understanding God and his word that we don't produce the kind of men and women who have this sort of depth. Now, that's also true for many past generations. I don't want anyone to get the idea that because it's older, it's better. Let me tell you, there were a lot of shallow, superficial hymns written during the period known as the revivalistic period in the late 19th century uh, and earlier periods as well. But overall, what you find in the 1600, in the post-Reformation period, the late 1500s, 1600s, people for whom the knowledge of God was the passion of their life. And because they didn't have the distractions of television and entertainment and social media and all of these other things, they would memorize scripture and they would reflect deeply and profoundly upon it. If you read sermons, I remember one time making a comment in my first church that uh, I said, and I, it was no critique or nothing personal about anybody there, I said, most of you probably could not read or understand the sermons that were written in the 1700s. Afterwards, some lady said, well, they couldn't understand them either. I said, no, you don't understand. Our education system has failed us so much that we are all, you know, impoverished compared to generations of a hundred or two hundred years ago. And as a result of that, we just do not produce the kind of quality in our thinking that was once produced. As Riken analyzes this hymn, he says, uh, as I just pointed out, the opening call to praise in stanza one immediately elevates us. The first line consists of three successive epithets for God. The first person addressed is the speaker's own soul in a move doubtless influenced by Psalm 103.1. Once this note of self-exhortation is introduced, we just naturally read the rest of the poem as being addressed to ourselves. But the rest of the opening stanza quickly broadens the scope by calling the whole company of believers to join in the speaker's personal act of praise. He goes on to say that the list of God's praiseworthy acts include his reigning, sustaining, ordaining, defending, directing the believer's life. God's work is described as as sheltering us under his wings. He grants our personal desires. He attends to our needs daily. He befriends us. He gives us health. He comforts us in grief. These are profound thoughts focusing us on all that God has done, uh, done for us. And then he points out the ways in which the words of these, the hymn draw from Scripture. He says the imagery of God's protecting wings is drawn from Psalm 91.4 and Matthew 23.37. The reference to God's prospering the work of our hands draws from Psalm 90, verse 17. And the reference to all that hath life and breath draws from Psalm 150, verse 6. So it what that's another thing that makes these hymns stand the test of time is that when we read them, we are reminded of Scripture. It focuses our attention upon the Lord. Another statement that we find related to praise is in Psalm 57, 9 through 11, focusing on what God has done and who he is. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, a declaration of that he will have public praise throughout the world. For your mercy, that's what he's praising God for, your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Notice the connection in the parallelism between mercy and truth. Think about that. God's mercy, his grace in action, provides us with revelation that is the foundation 
of truth. And then he concludes, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Exaltation has to do with praise. Let your glory be above all the earth. It is God's character. Psalm 59.16 says, but I will sing of your power. Don't we sing a hymn that begins that way? I will sing the mighty power of God. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. In the Old Testament, one of the things that we learn is if you were going to praise God, it wasn't, as I said earlier, it wasn't simply a matter of saying praise God, but you would probably write something out or think it through, memorize it in your head, and you would go to the temple and it cost you something. You would have to bring a sacrifice, and then you would express what God had done for you. Now, this is something we don't do in churches anymore. That's why I opened with the thought that praising God has fallen on hard times. And when we think about things, often we repeat what we have heard and what we have heard, what I have heard, uh, I'm as guilty as the next person at times, is, is rather superficial. We don't take the time to really reflect. Now, last year at Thanksgiving, when we had our Christmas Thanksgiving dinner in, um, actually it was in December, I had uh, asked some people to think about it ahead of time and to express their praises to God. And we'll do that again. This is, and maybe if we have another uh, fellowship meal before then, we will do this as well. That is our opportunity to truly praise God in a biblical, in a biblical sense. Psalm fifty-four six, psalmist writes, "I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise." And there's the word yada, which means to praise or confess. I will praise your name. I will confess your name. Again, it's a focus on God's essence, for it is good. So this is something that is very important for us as believers, is to think through how we praise God. It gets us out of ourselves, and it gets our focus upon the Lord. In the New Testament, we had the same challenge. Therefore, by him, the writer of Hebrews says, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. If you're going to do a good job making a public statement of praise, you have to think about it. It's going to take time, concentration, removal of distractions in order to do something to the best of your ability. Not Don't look at somebody else and say, well, you know, I can't say something as well as so-and-so. That's not the standard. The standard is to the best of your ability. To offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our our lips, that takes it beyond thought. It is verbally expressing what God has done in our lives and our gratitude to him, giving thanks to his name, to his essence, focusing upon that. A third point is that praise is a product of our appreciation to God. As I just pointed out, as such, it's expression of gratitude, which is always a barometer of our grace orientation. We need to think about who God is and what he has given us and to respond to that grace, that undeserved favor, in terms of gratitude and then expressing that and talking about that uh, to people. Fourth, and I'm not going to take much time on this, in the Psalms we have declarative praise psalms and uh, we also have descriptive praise psalms. The declarative praise psalms are sometimes called thanksgiving psalms, so that's the word you'll see in most English translations. And they are declaring what God has done and who God is. A lot of the declarative praise psalms reflect more on his attributes and thanksgiving and excuse me and uh, descriptive praise psalms then focus on just what God has done for us. The fifth point is that as such what we find when we read these praise psalms is that there's a, an expression of real enthusiasm and joy and excitement about how God has intervened in our life. 
They're enthused about it. The emotions isn't driving what they're saying, which is what happens so often in our culture as we get the cart before the horse. But because God has delivered, because God has been involved, we are excited that he has done, and it's expressed in hyperbolic terms. For example, in Psalm 3, 4 through 6, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, that's a great thought. How many people get intimidated by somebody in their family, somebody they work with, who if I mention the fact that I am a believer, then they're going to make life hard on me. So we cave to fear and we don't stand up and we don't trust God. Here David is surrounded by uh, <clears throat> tens of thousands and he says, I will uh, not be afraid. Sixth point is that public praise should motivate our devotion to and trust in the Lord. When we hear what God is doing in other people's lives, that challenges us. If God did that for them, he can do the same kind of thing for me. It is encouraging to us when we hear how God is working, providing for, delivering, and sustaining other believers. This is very much a part of our of our uh, praise to God. And seventh, this is a tough one. Seventh is we need to internalize the word. We need to meditate on God's word. Now, for the last several years, I've been challenging everybody to read the word, read through your Bible once a year. But reading is more for information, being reminded of certain things, highlighting certain promises. The next step is to reflect on that. And this takes time. This means that you have to sacrifice something. You have to sacrifice not watching TV, not reading editorials, not reading novels, not doing something you enjoy doing, and taking that time to really think about the Scriptures. That's why we have had courses in the past on how to study the Bible, because that's what happens here. You have to study. You have to do the word studies on your on your own. You have to do a little research to come to understand what the text is saying. So we have to understand it, we have to review it, and we have to remember it. At this stage, you memorize these verses. Once they're internalized in your soul, then you can think about them when you're driving to work or driving home or when you're lying in bed going to sleep or when you wake up at 2 in the morning and you uh, can't go back to sleep, then you can rehearse those verses and think about them and ruminate on them uh, as you sleep. That is the idea there. The term ruminate comes from uh, animals that are ruminants that have maybe multiple stomachs and they chew the cud. And so they'll eat, they'll swallow, it'll come back up, they chew it some more. And that's the imagery here that we learn something and then maybe spend time doing something else and then bring it back up into our thinking and think about it some more and reflect upon it some more. Uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 63, 6, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. I woke up in the early this morning, 4.30, couldn't get back to sleep. I started working my way through Psalm 23. Somewhere in there, I fell asleep again. But that's the idea. I was thinking about these verses just yesterday, Psalm 77, 6. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart. All of this, point number seven, takes time. This is why Paul just before he's talking about being filled by means of the Spirit, says that we're to redeem the time. We are to use the time for that which has eternal spiritual significance. It takes time. That means we have to be more intentional and in terms of managing our time so that we have time to read his word, reflect on his word, and ruminate on his word. And then last but not least, the eighth point, praise expresses specifics, not just generalities. What are the specifics in how God has answered prayer, how God has worked in your life, how God has provided 
and delivered you. I want to close by reading from Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. That's praise. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. The first result of being filled by means of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.19 is not talking about how much you know about the Word. It is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord. The Bible says a lot about singing to the Lord, but somehow a lot of people put that as something secondary. Psalm 105.3, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon what it means to praise you to tell of what you have done, to reflect upon who you are and how your attributes have provided for us, sustained us, protected us. Father, we are so thankful for all that we have in Christ, but this simply expresses our potential, what we have been appointed to do in terms of our mission in the church as part of the body of Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone who's listening to this message here or uh, via the Internet or some other means, that if they have never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, may they understand that you have provided a perfect, complete salvation, not dependent on anything that we do or any merit in our lives for the merit resides totally in the work of Christ on the cross where he died in our place to pay our penalty so that we would not have to, so that all that is necessary is to believe in him, to trust in his substitutionary death on the cross as completely satisfying your righteousness and justice so that by trusting in him, we are taking his death as our own. And for that belief, you give us eternal life and you give us his righteousness on the basis of which we are justified. We thank you for what we have studied today. and We pray that you will use it to challenge us to think more about you, to praise you, and to articulate to others what you have done in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.